Okay, we're continuing our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount again today. This would be week six in our series. And the passage that we're going to read from is Matthew chapter 5 from verse 27 through verse 32. We're going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 5 verse 27 through 30 uh, here in a minute. So the title of the sermon is Adultery, Lust, and Divorce. So... Yay, right? This is one of those subjects that uh, can be uncomfortable to talk about. It can be uncomfortable uh, to be preached to about. uh, You can know that it can be uncomfortable to preach about. But it's in God's Word. And all of God's Word is holy. All of God's Word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And all of God's Word is for you and I to follow. So we're going verse by verse through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and here we are today. Let's read together from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning of verse 27, the words of Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That was Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Now, those are some strong words. Oh my goodness. And let's be sure and, and uh, interpret them correctly and, and respond to them faithfully. Jesus fulfills the law. You've heard me say that a number of times in a number of weeks now. Jesus fulfills the law. At this point in the Sermon on the Mount, like last week, Jesus is going back and forth with the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law and then preaching to them the truth of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is affirming the Ten Commandments and then expounding on them, making his greater application of them, fulfilling them. And in these verses, today, Jesus affirms the Seventh Commandment, which says, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus also affirmed earlier in this sermon the entire Old Testament sexual ethic. He did that by saying, I did not come to abolish the law. Right? He goes on to say, but rather to fulfill the law. For Jesus to affirm the Old Testament sexual ethic is for him to say, sex is meant to be expressed and shared within a marriage covenant between one man and one woman, a husband and a wife. Anything outside of that, Jesus does not endorse And Jesus does not bless. In fact, he categorized it as adultery. But inside of a marriage covenant, sex is a beautiful gift that blesses God. In fact, the Bible is very pro-sex. Have you ever thought that sex blesses God? Um, That's an amazing statement, but it's true. Within the marriage covenant... The expression of our sexuality is how God designed it. 
And so it fulfills God's design for us. When a man and a woman within a marriage covenant express their sexuality to each other. There are passages in the Bible that will make you blush. Um, but according to the scriptures, sex was designed by God to be a covenant sealing act of whole life entrustment to another person. That a husband and wife would commit the fullness of themselves to one another in an exclusive, permanent, one flesh relationship that is unbreakable until death. Now, I know that this view has fallen out of favor with our culture, and I know that you know it too. It's seen as absurd, as primitive, as regressive, sometimes even dangerous. Someone hearing this sermon may even think that. I want to say that you're welcome here at this church. You are free to disagree with me. You are welcome to ask questions. My hope is that there is no sense of judgment here for me or anybody else. But you need to know that I am more convinced than ever that the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of Jesus Christ, and the witness of the church for over 2,000 years affirms that God's design for sex is that it is enjoyed within a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. In that marriage ceremony, a spouse makes a vow to have and to hold, forsaking all others, as long as we both shall live. Another way to say that is, I will never give myself in this way to anyone but you, until one of us dies. If we believe that this is God's design for sex, then it becomes obvious that not only is adultery not part of that design, it's an absolute devastation of that design. And I know someone could be thinking, oh great, another Christian preacher talking about sex. And then immediately think, well, how hypocritical is that? You know what? In some cases, you'd be right. I can name numerous high-profile Christian preachers who, and other Christian leaders who have been found guilty of adultery, of sexual abuse, and other sexual misbehavior. You need to know that Jesus hates self-righteousness and hypocrisy. But if that's the line of thinking that you have before you cast stones, you must realize that adultery and hypocrisy is not just someone else's sin, it's all of ours. It's mine. It's yours. So, let's own this, okay? And let's deal with it according to God's Word. So the problem of lust, Jesus says, again in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And um, can I just stop here for a minute? We're going we're gonna to look at an Old Testament reference to a similar situation, and it, and it names the, the woman enticing the man. Uh, and in a strongly patriarchal society, here in the New Testament, Jesus... He calls out the man in this, right? And so that's kind of that's kind of um, groundbreaking for his day and age, and, 
much respect to Jesus, along with all the other reasons to respect him, for having the courage to frame this that way. Some of you may be familiar with King David from the Old Testament. He was alone one night and looked out his window over the Jerusalem skyline where he saw a married woman bathing naked on the roof. Now, that was the way that they bathed back then. They went up on the roof uh, with a pitcher of water and, and got naked and bathed. Okay? That's the way it was done. They didn't have a bathroom, they didn't have a bathtub, they didn't have a shower, they didn't have a dormant. They went up on the roof. That's how it was done. It was supposed to be done that way in that culture. I've traveled in Asia in places where that's still done today. Traveled to Nepal, and that's how they did it. They went up on the roof of bay. So uh, it's not a, a weird thing to David saw a woman. It's completely uh, the cultural norm. So he was alone, looked out the window over the Jerusalem skyline, where he saw a married woman bathing on a roof. He lusted for her. He called her to his palace. He committed adultery with her, and she became pregnant. So, he had her husband murdered to cover it all up. And a year or so later, a court prophet named Nathan came to David and told him an allegorical story. There, and the summary of Nathan's story to David is there was a man who is coveted, he is stolen, and he has murdered. What should we do? And David says, that man must pay. He must be tried. And Nathan said, you were that man. That's a courageous prophet to say that to the king. When we talk about adultery or any sexual sin, we can be so quick to judge. Look at those people. Look at what they're doing. But Jesus, right here in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you are those people. You are the man. Adultery is not someone else's problem. It's yours. It's mine. Because Jesus goes to the heart, just like he has already done in the Sermon on the Mount with anger and murder, going to the heart. That anger is the seed of murder. Well, lust is the seed of adultery. And the seed of adultery is in all of us. Even if you've never committed the sexual act of adultery, you have lusted in your heart. Which Jesus says, when it comes to the heart, it's not much different than the act. So let's talk about, and this is important too, the difference between lust and desire. Many people read this Bible passage that we're looking at today and think that the only way to respond is to repress your sexual desires. This is not the conclusion that Jesus wants us to come to. Jesus does not say sexual desire or attraction is bad. He says lust is sinful. So let's differentiate the two. We're often embarrassed by our sexual desires. But God gave us sexual desires. To be sexual is not the opposite of being holy. We are created sexual. It's not lust if you find someone attractive. It's not lust if you have a desire to have sex. 
It's not lust to experience sexual temptation. Lust is how we respond to those experiences. Let me give you an example that might help. Let me talk to the men for a second. Suppose you're watching a movie and one of the actresses is attractive. It's okay to notice that. But if, after seeing the actress, you pull out your phone and look her up on her Instagram profile and start looking intently at all her photos and you let your mind move from attractiveness to sexual fantasy, at that point, it has become a real problem. It becomes an act of betrayal on your spouse or even your future spouse. Think about that. And the seed of adultery has been placed in your heart. Because you followed the, the notice of attractiveness into temptation and into lust, active lust. And women, it can be a shirtless actor or model. And let me just pause here for a second. The only social media I use is Facebook. And I see way more pictures of shirtless men. Um, there's something about a shirtless guy with a tight pair of jeans and a big buckle and a cowboy hat. And like rock hard abs in between that just women go crazy for. I see way more of that than I see men posting pictures of scantily clad women. Um, so that's my personal Facebook experience. So um, we're all in this together. So I, I read this week of one couple. This is really cool, man. I've never thought of this, but I really like this idea. When there's a really attractive actor or actress on a TV or movie that they're watching together, and, and maybe they're wearing or doing something provocative, um, they pull the blanket up over their heads and snuggle with each other. They both recognize that in that moment, some level of sexual desire has been activated, and before the attraction can turn to lust, they stop and redirect it back to each other. Because to let those thoughts be directed toward anyone outside the covenant uh, that they've made to one another would be an act of betrayal. That's a, that's a really positive, proactive way to handle that. And, and um, so we got to get a blanket big enough to cover both of our clients. We may never come out. Um, if I thought my wife was lying in bed fantasizing about another man, it would break my heart. Likewise, my wife's heart would be crushed if she thought I was fantasizing about any other woman. Right? Here's a definition of lust. The sin of lust is creating a sexual relationship in your mind that doesn't involve only your spouse. Or and and or it doesn't involve the sin of the one you're lusting. You should never lust after anybody but your spouse. But but both of those aspects are important. Um, lust is both an act of betrayal. To your spouse and an act of selfish consumption that uses another person and they become an object for your personal pleasure. The personal and social costs of lust. 
One area where lust is most obvious in our culture is pornography. And today, pornography is more accessible than ever before in the history of humankind. It's created a, a pandemic. It used to be that you had to go to a CD store to hear the shame of asking for a magazine that was behind the counter. But today, it can be accessed anytime, anywhere. And for much of the culture, it's been normal. And what was once mostly a guy's issue has now become just as much of an issue with women. There is a dangerous myth that pornography is harmless. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's just me looking at something in privacy. But that's not true. There are numerous studies on the social cost of pornography, particularly on those who view it, but also on women, children, families, and communities. One study was done by numerous psychologists concluded that porn use undermines marital and dating relationships. It can make men sexually incompetent with a real partner. Pornography can lead to a growing attraction to images that are hardcore in nature that often include violence. For women, it leads to growing expectations that are impossible for any woman to live up to. For adolescent boys, studies show that boys who view pornography early in life have an increased chance of being sexually violent and sexually abusive toward their peers. For adolescent girls, they are more inclined to tolerate emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And going even further, many studies have revealed that there is a connection between the pornography industry and sex, human trafficking and sexual exploitation. As pornography use increases, sexual exploitation becomes necessary to keep up with the demand. Sex slavery is a reality, not just in the red light districts of Amsterdam and Bangkok, but in the United States. I've been to the red light district in Bangkok. Um, back when Lucy and I owned the business, I was um, among a group of people who went to look at an opportunity to fund the building of a Bible college in Nepal on the way home and spent a few nights in Bangkok. And one night, me and another man went looking for a particular location in the middle of, of Pat Hong, the, the red light district in Bangkok, at night on purpose. Um, there was a ministry there that was teaching women um, how to become um, hairdressers, cosmetologists, you know, doing nails, hair, and, and makeup, and all that stuff. And it was their path out of the sex slavery industry, out of prostitution. And, and uh, there are areas in northern Thailand where the cultural norm is that they take one of their daughters and send her to Bangkok to work in, in the sex industry to send money back home to support the rest of the family. That's the cultural norm. They sacrifice one of their children to that, to have more money for the rest of the family to live on. And there was a lady from New Zealand that had moved there because her calling was to teach them another way to make a living. And, and um, you know, it, it's dangerous to help people right in the middle of that and helping people get out of that. And man, she was a bold, humble Christian lady 
and nobody could find where her place was. And so me and this other guy, we spent three or four hours and finally found a place and connected her with the people who'd been looking for her location. And, and um, there was a huge jump in the funding. And, and that's one of the things that I'm most pleased that I got to, to be a part of. Um, it was horrendous there. And, and, the, and the, the degrading and dehumanizing things that happen to girls and, and young women and men in places like that is just horrendous. But the truth is that it happens here in the United States. It's not quite as open. But it's going on. Um, sex slavery is a reality. Men who use pornography, you are aiding, you are championing and paying for this level of injustice. Some people still try to say pornography is harmless. I'm not hurting anybody else, but you're wrong. I read an article this week. And, and I want to give you the website. It's faithit.com. Like the word faith and the word it put together. F-A-I-T-H-I-T.com. And I encourage you to go there. There's an article. If you go there and use the, the search bar within the website, there's an article titled, To My Porn Watching Dad From Your Daughter. It's, it's a... One page or page and a half article, it's not too long, it's just devastating. My heart broke as I read it. Our culture is confused right now because on the one hand, we want to believe that the sexual revolution is progressive, but at the same time, we are reckoning as a country with the effects of the sexual resolution. Rape on college campuses continues to rise. Sexual abuse in virtually every form is on the rise. You may think Jesus' words about lust are harsh, and you may even think that the Bible's sex ethic is repressive, but I promise you this, if every man took the heart of what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, there would be no Me Too movement, because no woman would have ever been raped or abused sexually. We wouldn't be in the mess where you are in today, and lives would not be destroyed like they have been. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing the issues of his day. But I think if he was teaching in America today, um, if he was talking to someone about the sexual abuse that's so rampant today, I think Jesus would say the same thing. He might say something like, you Heard it said to not sexually abuse someone, but I tell you, if you have looked on another person with lust in your heart, you have committed sexual abuse. I hope and pray that you can see that Jesus' commands aren't laid out to restrict us, but to bring us freedom. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus went on to say that all the commandments flow out of that. This means that by fleeing from lust, we're loving God, and we're loving our neighbor as we should. So lust is not a private sin. It's a public one, because lust at its very core is an act of not loving your neighbor as you should.
So, putting lust to death. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Strong words. Strong words. This statement frequently has been misunderstood. It is important to note that Jesus is using hyperbole here. Hyperbole is like deliberately way overstating it to make the point. So the point is to get the point, not to literally follow the overstatement. Okay? Jesus doesn't literally want you to cut your hand off or pluck your eye out or remove any other body part for that matter. Jesus is simply getting our attention here to say, kill your sin before your sin kills you. Even if you have to take drastic measures. Now, what needs to be done to live in victory over lust is different for every person. All of us have a different threshold that we need to not cross. I also read this week about a person who had a college roommate who understood that he had a lust issue. It had become a porn issue on occasion, and this young man wanted to kill it before he got married, and it spilled into his marriage. So he literally took his bedroom door off its hinges. He put his computer in the living room and only used it there. His threshold was very low, so he fought it accordingly. Much respect to this young man. He recognized where he was at, and he, and he took active measures so that he could be living a victory over lust before he got married. Um, much respect to that young man. And speaking of a young man being tempted by an adulterous Proverbs chapter 7 verses 22 and 23, all at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. I came to realize early in my marriage that being married, it didn't solve all my lust issues. So eventually, early on in the marriage, after becoming a Christian who desired to follow Jesus day by day, I sought out men who I could see were more mature in their Christian faith than me. And, and we begin to meet together on a regular basis and talking about our lives and our faith journey. And I talked about this and they talked about um, their journey, their, their struggles, their victories. And I learned much from them and, and I listened to them and they heard me and I, we were accountable to each other. And based upon that mentoring, discipleship from other Christians, I place safeguards in my life. And to this day, I don't cross them. Um, and, and it helps me to honor the marriage covenant that I made with my wife before God. There are now apps you can put on your computer and on all your electronic devices with internet access. 
that allows someone you designate to be able to look at all your internet viewing history. You want some accountability? There it is. You can put it on your smartphone, on your tablet, on your laptop, on your desktop, whatever electronic devices you're going to use. You can install this app, give somebody the right, and all your internet viewing history automatically goes to that place. It can be accessed at any time um, with the person that you've designated has access to it. If you need that kind of accountability, there it is. It'd be a beautiful thing to use it. My wife can have any of my passwords and can log into any of my accounts anytime she wants to. It's a pledge I've made to her. Um, here's a good quote. Jesus doesn't suggest band-aids to cover our sin. He commands amputations to remove it. Not of literal body parts, but of the sources of temptation and lust. Whatever is causing you to sin, Jesus is saying, get rid of it. You think your little workplace flirting thing is no big deal? Well, it's more dangerous than you think. Cut it off. Stop. Now. Jesus is asking, is that book, that magazine, that app, that device, that relationship worth your entire life? Cut it off if you need to. Delete Facebook, delete Instagram, but whatever you need to do, but it's how I keep in touch. How can I delete that stuff? Listen, if it's causing you to sin, delete it. Jesus knows the ways we corrupt our souls and our relationships with others. He says it would be better to go into the kingdom of heaven with some of your desires unfulfilled than to go to hell with all your desires having been fulfilled. Here's another good quote. It is better to limp into the kingdom of heaven than to go leaping into hell. Do something about it. So, the path to freedom. Oh, that we could live in freedom over this. So far in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has called us all murderers and adulterers. If you've been angry with someone, it's as if you've committed murder, Jesus says. If you've ever lusted, it's as if you committed adultery in the eyes of God, Jesus says. So, if you think you have any righteousness to stand on before God, you have not. I have not. You need grace. I need grace. There is no room in the church for self-righteousness. Jesus says we need to worry about the log in our own eyes before we worry about the speck in the eye of someone else. So, how do we find freedom in this area? How do we address our lustful hearts? To flee from sin means you must run to something greater. In the earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount, it's no coincidence that Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, before he says, blessed are the pure in heart. When we hear these words of Jesus, and we reflect on our own lives, and on our own hearts, we should be convicted in some way. That hurts, I know. We don't like it. We don't like to think of ourselves as adulterers. But it is when we recognize our sinfulness that we run to God, receive his forgiveness, receive his power, which gives, receive his spirit, which gives us the power to pursue holiness. Before you can be free, you must experience forgiveness. 
But when you know you're forgiven, then you're free to pursue freedom. The only way to experience freedom in this area, area of your life is when the attraction of lust can be overcome by being attracted to something more beautiful than what tempts you. We need to fix our gaze on something greater, something more beautiful than the sin that entices us. Here's an illustration from Greek mythology, Jason and the Argonauts. This is an ancient story. It sounds like the name of a rock band to me, Jason and the Argonauts. Right? So here's, here's the, the story. Mariners are traveling by ship on an important mission. But one of the great challenges of the sea was a group of seductive creatures called the Sirens. Half women, half birds. They sang beautiful songs that enchanted the sailors. The sailors would hurl themselves overboard. Their ships would crash on the rocks and the men would drown. But on this ship was a man named Orpheus, the son of Muse. He was an extraordinary musician who could play the lyre, lyre? Anybody know how to pronounce that? Lyre? lyre? That's how far? No, not that far. So, Orpheus, the son of Muse, was an extraordinary musician who could play the lyre and sing like nobody else could. When the sirens began to sing their songs, Orpheus began to play. As they sang louder, he played his lyre louder and sang louder himself. He played a better song than that of the sirens. And the men turned themselves, tuned themselves into what Orpheus was playing. They sailed past the seductive songs that led to death because they listened to the song that gives life. Now, how about us fixing our eyes on Jesus? When we are enticed by the seductive songs of our own hearts and our culture, we need a more beautiful song to tune into. From Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. And from earlier in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what's more beautiful. That's who's more attractive than the lust within us. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who turn from lust, they will see God. What would you rather look at? What would you rather look at? What is truly more beautiful than God? The answer to lust is not just try harder or just stop. The answer is to find something more attractive, more beautiful, more life-giving. We find victory over sin by seeing greater beauty in Jesus, following Him. When we look at Jesus, here is what we find. A man, a Savior, who knows our thoughts. He knows the things that no one else knows. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 24, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. 
Jesus knows what is in every person. That means he knows what's in me. He knows what's in you. Jesus knows things that are in you that if anyone else knew, they'd run away, right? We, we kind of keep, there's a place in us we keep that stuff. It's like, oh man, nobody can know that. Well, Jesus knows the stuff that nobody can know. And he doesn't run away, not Jesus. He runs toward you. Jesus lived a life completely free from lust. He was tempted like you and me, but he did not sin. Jesus died the death of an adulterer so you and I can be forgiven and free. You no longer have to be guilty of adultery because Jesus took your guilt from you on the cross. So, my question for you today, will you take your eyes off your lustful fantasies and fix them on Jesus and find joy? That rush you're looking for you turn on your computer screen? That approval you're looking for when you flirt with your coworker? That feeling you're trying to find when you read that novel? All those feelings are a cheap imitation of what Jesus gives you. He gives you approval. He gives you joy. Jesus gives you embrace. He gives you acceptance. Jesus forgives. He restores. Jesus loves. No matter what your sexual past, no matter what desires or fantasies you have in your head or in your life, Jesus still loves you. Jesus moves towards you. Jesus embraces you. And now he looks at you and says, go and sin no more. Thank you, Jesus, that you talked about even